Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup-to-nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Listeners, I barely have a voice today. Again. I mean, here we are again. But I still managed to eke out this incredible interview that I'm so excited to share with you with Deanna Seagrave Daly and Serena Ball. Both of these wonderful, incredible, and so smart and talented women are both dietitians. They are cookbook authors, they're globe trotters, they're social media stars, and they have a new book that's coming out in December. It is called The Sustainable Mediterranean Cookbook. And honestly, this conversation, if this conversation is a preview to that book, then I can only say how truly epic I think that cookbook is going to be and how much there is to be learned from both of them. I just, they're both equally so fascinating and such a powerhouse of a team. And I just think they're exactly what the dietetics profession needs more of, which is uh, real people providing real tangible solutions and doing so in a clinically relevant and, you know, relatably meaningful way. I just found them so inspiring. So we get into so many topics today. We focus a lot of the conversation around the Mediterranean diet and the sort of pillars of it, what it really is all about, the general philosophy behind it. We talk about one of my favorite words that comes up all over the place in the Mediterranean diet literature, which is convivial. Reality. Google it, I guess, if that feels like something that you need to learn more about, but we do talk about it a lot. We talk a lot about the relationship between actually understanding where our food comes from and what sustainability really means and, and how all of us can very seamlessly and at our fingertips adopt some more sustainable practices that are beneficial for us, for our families, for the future, and for our present moment, because our present moment really matters too. So let's not forget that. I think you're going to love this episode. And because I adore Serena and Deanna, I am also going to do, we're going to do a little book giveaway for, for listeners of the On The Side podcast. So If you listen to this episode, you like what you're hearing, share a screenshot or a selfie as you're listening with your favorite anecdote or tip or something that you loved from the episode with me on Instagram at JacquelineLondonRD to enter to win a copy, a signed copy from Serena and Deanna's forthcoming book. You are going to love it. I think you're going to love this episode. I cannot wait to hear what you think. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, if you have any questions that you want answered on the On The Side podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Jacqueline London RD and listen for your answer on an upcoming episode. All right, let's get to it. Serena and Deanna. But first, let's get to a quick listener question. 
Okay, listeners, today's question was an interesting one. I actually got this question yesterday when I was doing another podcast, an interview for The Edge podcast. And it's actually a really interesting question. I've definitely been asked it before, so I thought I would share it with you here. The interviewer asked me if I personally use a scale or a food tracker or what do I use to kind of keep myself in check? Like how how do I go about planning meals and snacks for the day, for the week, for the month to stay on top of my health and to also stay at my weight? And I've got to say, I it's a, it's a strange question and it's also a really great question at the same time because I think it really speaks to our general kind of disconnect between the food that we consume and the degree to which we need to track it, micromanage it, treat it as if it's sort of like a business KPI versus how we actually physically feel. And that was really my answer when I was sharing my answer with this host, which is that I talk a lot about the satiety scale, which is sort of like a little thing, little ditty (laughs) I made up, a little rubric that I made up for when I was writing Dressing on the Side because it was something that I was using in practice all the time, which is that we need to consider a little bit more how physically satisfied we feel from the meals and snacks that we eat when we can take a moment to practice that awareness before, during, and after our meals and snacks, right? So when I talk about the satiety scale, just to give you guys a sneak peek, and of course I would say, please check out Dressing on the Side. You can find it wherever books are sold or easily on amazon.com. It's definitely on sale. (laughs) You can also, I've linked the audiobook, in fact, in the episode notes. You can also check it out there. But for the sake of getting to it, the satiety scale is basically like one to 10. One being you're so famished, you just run a marathon, you're starving, you are so hungry, you're like basically going blind. You feel like you're going to pass out. 10 being, you know, you just finished your second round of Thanksgiving leftovers on the same day of Thanksgiving. You're so stuffed. You feel like you could be in diabetic shock if even if you don't have diabetes. You're laying down on the couch and you're like, oh my God, I just feel ill. I wish I hadn't had that 14th slice of pecan pie, right? So in between all of that, right, is is where we really want to be. In the book, I kind of focus in on the three to four being a sweet spot pre-meal and a five to six or seven. Actually, five is probably low. So I'd say six or seven post-meal is really what we're going for more often when we eat food, right? Because it's not good to feel starving and it's not good to feel so stuffed that you can't think because both of those impair other things that are really important to us in our lives. So when I am personally thinking about what I'm in the mood to eat, because that's where everything starts, right? Food is only as good as us actually eating it, (laughs) right? So, and we're not going to do that if it doesn't taste good. So usually my thought process is, am I in the mood for something sweet or am I in the mood for something savory? And then I kind of use the ingredients that I have on hand to either create the meal that I want to have, or I am looking to my various technological innovations that come through my iPhone in the form of an app to find something to order. Or if I'm going out to eat, I'm choosing restaurants based on the location specifically. I think these two factors, the satiety scale of considering what else is going on in our day, 
what does satiety really mean to us in a given moment in time, right? Because the way that you think about how how sated, how satiated you really are may change if you're, you know, planning on going for a run in a half an hour versus you're turning in for the night. So that can mean different things to you, but it's just a question of you practicing that awareness of what it really means to you in a moment and for the specific place, time, and setting that you really are looking to enhance and to also fuel yourself with food, right? With a meal or a snack. The other thing is the location making all of the difference in what you're choosing to eat, right? It's a little tough to, let's say, you are listening to this episode and you're in Tuscany, you're likely not thinking about a McDonald's burger. And by the way, no judgment if you are, but I'm saying, you know, for the purpose of like what's likely on your menu tonight is probably Italian Tuscan cuisine specifically. So thinking about it through the lens of what you're really in the mood to eat and also what else is going on in the course of your day and what are the foods that you know that you have on hand or that are readily accessible to you to help you feel satisfied and not just full. And I'll tell you on the flip side where I've seen this kind of go by the wayside is that when people are focused on feeling full or worrying about I don't want to eat. I'm just going to restrict for now because I don't want to be too full before I go into XYZ thing for the next few hours. But then you come out of that and you find yourself on the other side, just totally raging and like going straight to the pantry and eating the entire contents of table crackers that you have on hand. This is often where I find that people are not kind of just like doing the basic check-ins with themselves of like, how satisfied do I want to feel? What do I need right now? And what am I in the mood to eat? Those kind of questions that come up. And then the other kind of biological factors that play a role in that. Eating consistently throughout the day makes a huge difference in both your energy level and your satiety and how physically full versus satisfied you feel going into your next meal, how you set your day up to be structured in a way that fuels and empowers you. And also how hydrated you are, of course, really plays a huge role because it's very easy to confuse thirst and hunger, but it's also just so often that in the patterns that we establish for ourselves of not getting up to have that snack or to to go outside for a meal, we lose that mental kind of check-in of, oh, wait, let me get a drink. Let me just grab some water while I'm standing up or away from my desk or away from my computer, whatever it is, right? So all of those things play a role and factor in, but think about checking out the satiety scale, the determining how satisfied you feel when you've had the combination of foods that you know make you feel satisfied. And if you need that kind of like the, the sort of hardcore nutrient breakdown of a place to start, I would say as long as you're combining sources of protein and fiber, you're already taking a huge step to choosing foods that are satiety promoting. All right. So I will leave it there for now, but always feel free to reach me with your questions at Jacqueline London RD on Instagram. I'm here for that. And I'm here for you listeners. I can't wait to hear what you think of today's episode. Welcome, Serena, Deanna. I'm so happy to have you both here on the side We have so much to talk about. First, we have to talk about the fact that we had not yet had the chance to meet when we really should have. We need to start with that, I think. But also, (laughs) where I really want to start is, let's almost start at the end instead of starting at the beginning. Let's start with the new book, the book that's coming out. Tell me everything, the idea, where it came from, and oh my God, does it feel as crazy to be on, what is what number book is this? Number 10? Number something insane? Something amazing? Three. (laughs) This is three, but we're working on our fourth. 
So I rest my case. Okay. So, so you, so you've been busy. You've both been really busy. Where did the idea for, for this one come from and tell our listeners the name? Cause it's an amazing name. We're always waiting. Who's it? Go ahead. Serena. I know. No, <laughs> Go okay. So here it is. I'm showing you the screen. This is Serena. Just so you can. Amazing. So this, it's a pretty bright blue cover and it's called the sustainable Mediterranean diet oh. cookbook. And we actually have been doing healthy kitchen hacks for years on our blog, teaspoonofspice.com. And most of them are just ways to use up food, to prevent food waste, to be budget-friendly at the grocery store, to be able to have shortcuts in the kitchen, which is all sort of combined together into the Sustainable Mediterranean Diet Cookbook. And then a couple of years ago, when there was a new study that came out in The Lancet that said that the Mediterranean diet is really one of the, the best for the, the planet, basically, and sort of looking at all the research and all the meal patterns and all the ways that people around the Mediterranean eat, that it really is eco-friendly because it's a lot of beans and legumes, it's local foods, low seasonal eating, and it really is a great way to eat in terms of sustainability as well. And so we said, we already have all these recipes, we already have all these healthy kitchen hacks, let's combine it in one book. And this is our third Mediterranean book. So our first two, 30-minute Mediterranean diet, and then our second one, Easy Everyday Mediterranean Diet Cookbooks were just popular and we it's just a way we found ourselves cooking in general when we got approached by a publisher about five years ago to write on this topic. And it's just such a great way. We're finding more and more as we learn that there are so many ways. And honestly, it's true about obviously any cultural, if you're being true to the culture and where you're from, it's going to be more sustainable if you're eating more local, if you're eating foods that are in season, et cetera. So we just wanted to kind of put it through the Mediterranean lifestyle lens, a sustainability, and just really educate people too that the Mediterranean is not just about people think of, uh, like, for instance, Jackie, what do you think? What country do you think of when you hear Mediterranean diet? I love that you asked that. I really, I'd like to do a tour. I'd like to go on the boat and I would like to go, <laughs> I'd like to go from Italy to Greece. And then I would like to go a little, I'd like to go to France and Spain too. I'd like to include those on my tour of the Mediterranean. But yeah. I, I totally agree with you. I, I the, the Mediterranean, it touches four, 40 something countries. It's over right? 20. Over and 20. I'm so glad okay. you named those countries because okay. those are the ones that right. people think of. And because that's how it's been marketing, that's where the research was from many years ago. But it's very also getting some backlash too, because it's not just those countries. It's the one, right. those are the ones that are represented. If you Google, those are the pictures that come right. up. It's over 20 countries. It's countries that all touch along the Mediterranean Sea. So it's North African countries right, right, that right, have right. amazing spices and some similar uh, cooking methods, but unique cooking methods. So that's like like Egypt and Tunisia and Algeria and Morocco um, and Libya. And then there's countries along in the Middle East, like Lebanon, Palestine, uh, Syria, Israel. And then you go up into, you're getting in like East European with Croatia and Cyprus, Turkey, um, Albania. There's over 20 countries. So it's like, we like to promote that as well to kind of give like a geography lesson too, that it's all these countries that have their similar thread to what they're doing, but they all have their unique spices and cooking methods and all, all that type of thing. And sustainability, it's just such a word. It's almost like a buzzword. It's almost Completely. like that word healthy that 
Completely. How do you define it? So Suri and I like kind of came up with what we think is an easy definition to understand where it's basically where you are fulfilling the needs of your current, of the current generation without sacrificing the supplies for the future generation. And in a, if you're really thinking positive, you're almost putting them in a better place than how you, yes. you know, you, you, you leave it. And it's, it's more than when we think of sustainability, I think a lot of, we think of environmental and a lot of this book is focused on that, like what's good for the earth kind of thing. But it's also, there's economic stability too, yes. uh, sustainability too, factors that go into that. There's um, social uh, sustainability too. So these are all factors we kind of had to look and research so it can be a very complicated subject. So we we're hoping this book kind of gives you just really like Serena mentioned, like healthy kitchen hacks. We have 10 top 10 eco-friendly guidelines for your kitchen. So you can do small things that add up to big changes kind of thing, because we all have to start contributing. There's many different levels you can go into, but this is like a place to start to make some of these things a little bit more of habits when you're in the kitchen. Well, what I love about that is that it works almost on a broader sense twofold, right? It's giving you the ability to feel empowered because so much of the conversation now about the general sustainability and what is it, you know, the this talk about emissions and how that's impacting us right now and the future and that we're feeling a little bit like we've gotten the short end of the stick on both of those, right? It kind of feels like there's just this really alarmist language that goes on both ends, right? Like either in one way, we're tanking our own economy. In another way, we're tanking our economy for decades to come. And our environment, of course, uh, obviously being at the center of all of that. And it makes you realize how if we actually just went to some basic principles of how we were really meant to eat and to live, frankly, because there's so many great things that I'm sure, and I can't wait, I cannot wait to get my hands on this book that I'm sure you touch on in this book, but something that always comes up when I find myself talking about Mediterranean and Mediterranean in general, right, is the one piece of this that no one ever talks about enough in our field, which is the conviviality component of how that's beneficial for health and how sitting down to have meals or to make meals together or to connect to the food that you're eating by maybe just knowing where it comes from or knowing that it's in season or <laughs> knowing that for where you live, this is the thing that you want to buy because your neighbor is the farmer of these products, right? So I think that's getting lost in the conversation a little bit. Tell us about that. What do you think? Do you think that, that we need to bring that more to the forefront? And and where is that happening in the book? Sneak you know, peek. it's funny that you say the word conviviality because we used it and our editor's like, do people conviviality, know that right? And we said, <laughs> yes, we're going to explain it in the book. It's sitting down and enjoying your food basically, but it's right. with friends. So right. whether it's family, so whether you're having people over, it's sometimes yourself, yeah. but maybe you could call your mom while you're eating your food and right. sit down with mom on the phone as well, or a friend. But you're right, it does come down to, okay, it's <coughs> dinner time and I need to get something on the table. And what are those tips for just, you know, one or two of them that you can not only get dinner on the table, but be somewhat sustainability in the process too. So that's why we really wanted to break it down into these 10 tips. Here they are. You're probably not going to be able to um, do them all every time, but little bits help. And so we've got over a hundred recipes and then you'll be able to get something on the table. And 
you know, enjoy it with whoever you're eating with and it will be sustainable in whatever scape you're able to do that. 100%. The idea of sustainable also meaning in our more clinical realm, sustainable habits, sustainable changes that you can actually stick with because you enjoy them so much, right? I think I think that's another component of the, it's almost tied to the conviviality piece where you're like, why can't we just use this word? Let's just use this word because it really speaks to what we're getting at. <laughs> that's right. I'm like, I'm glad you brought it up because honestly, our tagline is we are two dietitians who enjoy food as much as you do. Right. So it's almost like the nutrition and health is the secondary talking point. Right. And that's what we love about this lifestyle. We hate the word, you know, it's like diet. It's just, it's a lifestyle and it's about what foods can you enjoy more. And if you don't really like this one food, that's okay. Or maybe there's a different way you can cook it or a different right. spice you can use with it that makes you enjoy it. And it's all about making foods that taste amazing and good. And by the way, you know, they're actually fairly healthy too and fairly sustainable too, mm -hmm. because let's face it, it all comes down to taste. I'm not going to get motivated by saying, oh, this is, you know, let make this dish just because it's, you know, better for the earth, but it's going to freaking taste amazing. And I can get it on the table quickly because we also understand too, in our, the way our environment is, especially in America, it's not conducive to sit down and have dinner. We have right. sports, we have practice, we have a game scheduled all over the place. We don't have siestas. We don't, they don't close the shops during the day. Like we just, so we're mindful of that too, because you know, and we're not saying, I mean, we're not obviously from the Mediterranean. We've traveled there often. We have some family roots there. We talk to experts, but we don't live in that environment. So we're just giving like just little ways you can put some of this into practice at home. And guess what? It's not going to be every night. You are going to be sometimes just throw dinner on the table or whatnot, but we have tips on how you can do that. What is in your pantry? Like we really promote about using like canned vegetables, frozen yes. fruits, frozen vegetables, frozen things, things that you have on hand. So you can make that meal quickly and you don't have to think about it. And you have those things on hand or using up what you already have on hand or cooking more of something, or how can you repurpose this leftovers that you have in your kitchen to start with? And then just getting some of those meals on a rotation. And like you said, it becomes a sustainable habit. So then you don't have to think about it. Like, oh, I can just whip up that, you know, I, it's it's so funny. It's like, I can't even think of a recipe right now because we're actually working on our fourth book. So I'm like, is this right, recipe the third book or the fourth book? <laughs> but we have a, like a hummus. You can whip yeah. it up in your blender, like chickpeas in the cabinet, in your blender. And we have an awesome, delicious recipe where it's just some ground beef that you extend with mushrooms and some seasonings yeah. and throw it on top of the hummus and serve it with some pita bread. Bam, dinner's done, but it's Amazing. really delicious. And it's a different way to, to serve it. Um, so just ideas like that throughout the book as far as that. what speaks to you too. Because again, that's what Serena said. Not every single guideline we have is going to be, you might be like, okay, one of our guidelines is maybe growing some more food. Okay, Serena's the green mm -hmm. thumb in this relationship. I am the black thumb. I kill <laughs> weeds. I kill mint. I kill grass. But I have some tips in there on things I've actually grown on the windowsill. That's <laughs> so amazing. Like, yeah, regrowing those scallions. Like cut the, when you use a, get a scallion and you cut it and you just have the roots on the bottom and put it in a, like a little shot glass on your windowsill and in a week, that's regrown. Like things like that. Um, just, we, there's a lot of like, <laughs> free food. Like I get so excited. I say, oh my goodness, I can have some free food. Food because I've already bought these scallions and then I regrow them. And this is Deanna's trick. I'm like, this won't work. It's really not going to work. It works. It works. <laughs> and they're like, 
<laughs> a week, you have free food on your windowsill that you have from these little leftover scallions. Same thing with romaine lettuce. I'm not as good at growing that as Deanna is, but it's so great that you can actually grow your own food. And we're also talking about then easy tips for saving energy in terms of cooking methods. So we have a lot of tips and these are where some of our fun favorites because we tried to cook things in different ways using the slow cooker, using the toaster oven, using the um, electric kettle. Do you have an electric kettle, Jackie? Ooh, we have- I don't, diff- but maybe I should. <laughs> well, it, it, we're not about buying new Right, I know, I know. But got I do have one and it it um, heats water in about half the time that it wow. takes to um, heat. Well, actually less than half the time we timed it on the stove. So sometimes heating part of your pasta water in the electric kettle and then just tossing it into the pot to finish warming up helps save a little bit of energy here and there. And then a lot of slow cooker recipes. One of my favorites at Stiana's is the slow cooker red pepper and eggplant parmesan. So you oh make eggplant God. parmesan in the slow I'm cooker. salivating so a little again, bit. So again, you know, <laughs> tips that are able to save dinner when you do have a million things going on at night. And yeah. a lot of lentil recipes too. Just starting with a pot of lentils at the beginning of the week and then eating on it or adding stuff to it all throughout the week. Same with other any other sort of bean. And lentils are great because you don't have to soak them and Everything. eat them and just lots of different ways to use up lentils also throughout the week, which are very sustainable crops. They help regenerate the soil and so that you can grow more crops. So fun stuff. We got to look into agriculture and talk to farmers and really talk about the health of the soil too, which is kind of something that people are, don't really think that much about, but if you don't have healthy soil, you don't have healthy crops, whether they're um, meat-based or they're plant-based, they, it really has to be sort of a symbiotic relationship between all those plants and animals in order to get to a healthy soil and um, healthier planet. So that was fun stuff. Yeah, that's another guideline that, and we both did research, but Serena really wrote that chapter and did a ton because you can imagine even like talking about sustainable seafood. I mean, you could write an entire book on that and all the levels. And is it about (laughs) what species is it? Wild or farmed? Is it, if it is like fish sustainably, but is it being shipped halfway across the world to get to? Is that sustainable? And there's just so many, right. So we, then we talk, we try to simplify it a little bit more about having more variety, looking into your canned and tin fishes. That area is exploding. We were so excited when we were making this book, there was like smoked mussels at Trader Joe's for, that wasn't very expensive. And my husband, who I call a tricky eater, (laughs) I made a risotto with it and he loved it. I was like, what? So diving into that. And what we touch upon that we don't, I feel like everyone here is Mediterranean and plant-based, which of course is important and great, but there's definitely more plants that are a little bit more sustainable and forgiving to the soil, like Serena said, than others, like oats are a great example, but there is sustainable animal protein. You don't have to just, I feel like we feel like you hear about beef and they just get written off that cows are adding to, you know, the greenhouse emissions, et cetera, et cetera. And we dive into that a little bit more that saying compared to transportation, not really. And we're not saying go make your entire plate meat, but do as they do in the Mediterranean. And it's a flavoring agent. And guess what? Cows are like, beef cows are like the ultimate recyclers. Yes. Like they upcycle the earth. They get into areas like craggy areas of soil that crops cannot grow and they yeah. will graze there. And right. so it's almost like 
it's like Serena said, it's a symbiotic relationship with the earth. It's not just always about, you know, just writing off the animal protein as completely bad for the earth. That is not true on a lot of levels. It's a matter of balance with everything. So we kind of write about that a little bit. And so that's encouraging, I think, too, for people who think like, oh, I have to eat like a vegan, which is fine, you know, if that's your lifestyle, vegetarian, in fact, about 50 or 60% of recipes are vegetarian. But we Mm -hmm. talk about if you do love meat and chicken and eggs, this is you can include that in the lifestyle too. In fact, it is. And these are ways you can do it a little more sustainably as we educate you a little bit more about, you know, the farming practices and really, really looking at that a little bit deeper as well. We have charts and graphs on more sustainable meat and poultry sources and more sustainable seafood choices. So I was like charts and graphs. I do too. Oh my God, they help me. I mean, this is like true dietitian in this is like this is like us speaking to one another on a deep level. It's like I love a chart and graph. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, The thing that I wanted to ask you both to just dive a little bit deeper into, because I feel like this is a question that comes up for me all the time. And I'm seeing it with increased frequency. And I think that's not an accident as it relates to the Kardashian involvement in Beyond Meat that came out. I think it was over the summer that she made that announcement of like, you know, being a partner. Was it in Beyond Meat or Impossible? It was one of those. One of those two. But frankly, to me, they're quite interchangeable. But I'm wondering what, if you could help share with us your perspective on the sort of meat analogs. I mean, the word even just put together, meat analog, it just is an upsetting two words to put together. But that point aside, how do you feel about these from both the human health standpoint and the sustainability, the environmental standpoint? Because I feel like we're, we've actually made a fix, quote unquote, for something that was quite sustainable when done the way that it was meant to be done in the first place. But that's my, that's my opinion. I'd love to hear it from both of you. Well, I can, I can say that some of the meat analogs are based on mushrooms and fungus. And yes. Guess what? Okay. Yes. There's already True. so many mushrooms and fungus growing <laughs> right outside your door. Right. I mean, obviously you can't go forage them all the time, but I actually do with my family <laughs> In Illinois, we go out in the forest in the spring and we find morels, and those are easy to identify. And then in the fall, we do find a few here and there. But you can also go to the farmer's market and find those. You can also go to the grocery store. Deanna's from Pennsylvania, and they grow a lot of mushrooms in Pennsylvania. And they are expensive when they're grown in a lab. And they're not expensive when they're free food outside or when they're from the grocery store and they cost $1.29 for mushroom, a package of mushrooms. And I know how to use mushrooms. And I have a whole list of recipes here that I can use them in, in the book. And so not to dismiss them, but I just think that a lot of, in a lot of ways that the more budget friendly choice for most people is going to be to go buy mushrooms in the grocery store and use them in recipes. And we know that the benefits in terms of nutrition are vitamin D and fiber And did you know that mushrooms you can actually not overcook because you can, they're sort of like 
the foolproof uh, way to serve up dinner because you can't overcook mushrooms. You They just keep cooking forever and ever and ever. And you just can add more water to them. Oh, or this is add such a good point. I never. To them or, <laughs> I mean, they're just foolproof. Right. And it's I just foolproof. don't know if you're going to want to spend, you know, quite a bit of money on those other things. And what if you cook them wrong? I mean, yikes. That would not be good. 100%. Also, too, to that, it, again, this is just interesting. Again, it's to your point, Jackie, when you really kind of sit down and it's like sitting down with the meal and all that, but understanding where your food comes from, too. Right. And we've been, we are so lucky as dietitians, we've been able to tour many farms all across America, even Canada, even overseas, everything from mushrooms to uh, beef cattle and dairy and uh, just fruits and just um, soy and all mm. of that. And understanding the process and mushrooms again. Yeah, I'm from Pennsylvania and it's the mushroom capital of the world is like 20 minutes for me. <laughs> but the cool thing is you can grow them anywhere. Right. And they don't, if you think about what mushrooms are, they can be grown anywhere. They don't need a big soil or land in uh, footprints. They right. can be grown in like dark houses, any kind of weather. Um, they really can be grown anywhere in any climate because they can be grown indoors, et cetera. So again, they're another very sustainable crop. And to Serena's point, we never want to bash any kind of like, and I know you're not asking that, but yeah. any kind of product, because certainly there's an audience for everyone for certain things. But to Serena's point, we have things that are often in those meat analogs in the recipes in here that honestly, it's going to be less expensive. It's going to taste better and be a little more sustainable because guess what? If you're buying the local mushrooms and we're all about, we're not about like necessarily like organic is better way to go too. Cause often if you're buying something organic, it's being shipped across the country um, versus you're supporting someone local nearby or you're supporting your conventional beef farmer down the road and you're buying a share of of the cow kind of thing. So it just, I think it goes back to people's choices, but if you are buying those to think they're more sustainable or better for the environment or, you know, those kind of reasons, you know, not necessarily so when you're, you're breaking it down based on the way we're, we're talking about how you could cook in the book too. And as far as tastes go, that's what I always come down to. What do they taste like? I mean, I know some of them, Hey, if you're vegan and you want that mouthfeel of meat, et cetera, or, or whatnot, and you really love them, hey, that's great too. But like Serena said, we have some ideas in the cookbook too that can imitate that. It's that umami taste. So that's that savory sense. And mushrooms are very, like they're the ultimate umami. So that's why you often see them paired with beef to like, you know, make it like a, a extended a little bit more or even substituted in certain ways too. So... Um, I love that. I'm so glad you, I'm so glad you brought up the mushroom because you're so right. First of all, that it's, it's, I find myself talking about this. I'm usually focused on the bean. You know what I mean? I'm usually like trying to, trying to get people to, yeah, go beans. beans. You know what I mean? We use them all the time, but don't, (laughs) yeah. The mushrooms are such a great point. It's such a great point. So when you are in the process of recipe development, where does it begin? Where does it start? Do you start with certain ingredients like mushrooms? like lentils and say, all right, Serena, you're going to focus on lentils right now. And Hannah, you're going, you're going hard on the chickpea. I mean, like, where do we, where, where, where do we begin? Is there a platform? Is well, you, are you guys on Pinterest? Where, yeah. what is, what's happening? <laughs> so when, we, since we're dietitians, we start with a chart, of course. Of right? course. Where no, else we do, you start? We actually do start with charts and, and sort of laying out all of the numbers of recipes that we need. So there's, here's a little bit of behind the scenes, but 
we have we know that we want so many numbers of vegetarian main dishes and breakfast and desserts, of course, because you always have to have a cookbook with desserts. And those are one of our favorites. And those such are some a of the great, hardest. Yeah, such oh, a great Mediterranean the moment. They yeah, are. because you want it to be so good and we have so many ideas, but there's so many good fruit ones and chocolate and coffee and where do we go? But Basically, we start with how many of each one that we need, and then we just go from there. A lot of we have over 700 recipes on our blog, and a lot of them sort of start with an idea there because we have been cooking Mediterranean for over 10 years and for our family. And we figure if they work for our family and they've already been tested by our family, or if they've other friends that have come to us and say, Hey, I have this great recipe for this. And can you tweak it? And so a lot of them come with from friends and family as I well. And so we do tweak them to become easier to, you know, like we said, shortcuts in the kitchen or in this book, like I said, we focused a lot about quick, less energy cooking methods. So again, the toaster oven, the slow cooker, or just quickly on the skillet and get it on the table quick. Yeah. And also too, we, um, when we started with our first book, it was, it was fun. We had all these ideas. Well, now we're working on our fourth book. So sometimes we're like, do we do that recipe already? (laughs) (laughs) Or we do a variation of it. Mm -hmm. And then what helps too is again, as we travel and we meet farmers and we, we go on these tours and we do our travels personally too. We, we've gotten tons of ideas, which it's been fabulous too. Um, I got to go to Israel about three years ago and just that really was very magical too because um, you touched upon that too. And of course, everyone cannot afford to travel to these countries. You know, we have some trips coming up that we're doing, but you know, that's that's not ideal for everyone. But that's why we like to, when we're visiting certain places too, that, and sometimes it can even be like an ethnic, like a, a very true, you know, a Lebanese restaurant in our neighborhood kind of thing and getting ideas that way as well and learning more about those ways of cooking and spices, et cetera, versus just, you know, what we're used to. I'm a part Italian. So that's, and I've been there many times. So that's kind of like always been my go-to and that's how kind of we started out, but then expanding again, beyond those, you know, four countries we always talk about in the Mediterranean too. And it's fun. It's some Serena and I, most fun conversations and calls where we get on and we'll throw ideas on the grid and then we'll tweak something this way and be like, Oh, did you think about that? And then of course we have the like handful of recipes that we sounded amazing on paper and we've tried them 10 different ways and they just don't work. <laughs> and then we're just like, okay. process right there. Right. Yeah. And we do, um, starting to touch upon it, but we started doing it for our second book and we've done it for every book since where we about one third to, uh, about like 30% of our recipes mm. are tested by family, friends, our readers, people that watch our Facebook lives every week. We have recipe testers test these recipes and we change it based on like what they say, if it's too hard, if they can't find an ingredient and we tweak it. And then we put their quote in the book too. But we always say, cause Serena's in a more rural area. So if she cannot yeah. find an ingredient in her grocery store, it does not go in the book because we, we you, you have to make that. it. So it's not something that's super expensive. Cause that's another, I think, barrier still with the Mediterranean diet. Yeah. People think it has to be this expensive way of eating. You have to have a special olive oil or you have to use these expensive spices that I'm going to use once. And we like blow that myth right out of the water that it has to be affordable. It has to be doable and approachable, not crazy cooking methods that are going to take three hours type of thing. So, um, and we understand too, with certain cultures, like there's certain recipes that that's the way you do it. 
And we'll right. acknowledge that, but we'll say, hey, this is the shorter cut version of that authentic recipe. I love that so much because I think that's, that is the underlying philosophy of Mediterranean that always gets lost, which is that we, as so many of us just tend to be, it's like we see a recipe written or we see rules and we think it, it's got to be a certain way when actually these are rules that were meant to be applied and not followed to a T, right? And I feel like that that's so important because it's so true. Like knowing that people are coming from different places and may have access to different types of ingredients and different things that are are going to be a little bit different in the South versus the North even, just, just as, as simple as that. But what I really wanted to ask you both about is that where does the travel component feed, so to speak, the book ideation and the chapters and the recipes and how it comes together? Does it play a direct role? I, I know you mentioned it does sometimes when it's you go to a farm and you may hear something from a farmer and you're like, oh, we've really got to add that. But talk a little bit about how each of those feeds one another almost. And I hate to use the word feed, but I will because I am a dietitian. I'm not going to deny my roots. <laughs> Yeah, it, um, well, you, you know, in an ideal world, if we were, you know, uh, Giada or whatever, we would right. just drop right. everything and go just to uh, whatnot. Um, but I think it's just, it's more based on, you know, and Serena is really good about this. Like she will call up a restaurateur or research the origin of those sardines and where they're from right. if we need to dive deeper into those things. But it's almost like it's the opposite of what you're saying, what has happened to us, because with these cookbooks now, we do have a travel component, but it's coming really after the cookbooks are done because we're working on this one, Sustainable Mediterranean is coming out in December. Um, You can pre-order it now anywhere online, basically any store that sells books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, independent bookstores. But what has come of it in the last year is I had... I connected with a Philadelphia um, woman who has a boutique travel business that she goes to certain Mediterranean countries and we got to talking and she was really interested in our books and she thought, Hey, you know, I'm going to some of these areas anyway, would you like to do like a culinary component to these? So we're having our very first travel with the teaspoons trip in about oh three gosh. weeks to Provence, France, Southern France. And I just it's got funny, the chills. Like I knew that and, I, and like, I still just got the chills hearing you yeah. say that. I, <laughs> <laughs> we're writing our fourth book now that's due pretty much when that trip is over. So it's almost like those recipes would always ha- already have to be in the book. We're working on a smart Mediterranean book um, to follow up the sustainable one that's going to tie Mediterranean diet into cognitive health, but also mental yes. health too. So, um, Which I know you're an expert on, Jackie, because you just talked about it at your on your latest podcast, the Let's see, was it the, oh, it was the time management one. And oh my you God. described the Mediterranean diet in a very, very easy to understand way, just like we would, but it, yeah. you really did a great job of just sort of encapsulating it in a few sentences. I was actually really impressed. My God, thank you. That is, first of all, that is such a high compliment coming from, coming from my Mediterranean gurus here. That's a very high compliment. But meanwhile, I'm thinking to myself, what did I say on that? You're connecting it to brain health. Oh, yes. Yes. Which is so missed, right? Because we, and and I love this. We're not talking about that. I love that this is, and maybe this is, maybe we talk more about this one because this is another idea that has been brewing for me, which is that we have this evidence that came from 
I want to say it was Rush University in Chicago that was about the mind diet and the the core tenets of the mind diet and how like and how great this is and how wonderful. Well, the mind diet is the Mediterranean diet but applied to a different region of the world. <laughs> you can't call it Mediterranean if it doesn't touch a Mediterranean country. So therefore, it, it in this case is the exact same thing, but it's being applied to a different geographical location, but it's the same core tenets, the core principles. I mean, I feel like that's the kind of thing that is so significant and show, just further serves to bolster that the overall philosophy behind what we traditionally understand to be the Mediterranean diet is widely applicable. It's just a, a question right. of doing it and sticking with it. And part of what makes you both so amazing is that sticking with it means having tools and resources and, and a general understanding that helps you build and make this easier on yourself so that you can do it in a way that's actually repeatable. That's yeah. I feel like we could apply all our recipes to these topics. It's just, we right. like laser focus on them. And the thing we're right. really excited about is because we feel like, okay, right now it's, it's being talked about more like gut health has been the thing, you know, talk, which is so important and so amazing with, you know, cooking and eating and how that ties into gut health. And now as we're learning more about gut health, we realize gut and brain are right. absolutely 100% wired and gut health and brain health are kind of this circular relationship too. So how can foods help with brain health. And we feel like there's been a lot of talk about it, not as many cookbooks about it with cognitive brain health, but nothing about mental health because that's part of the whole brain too. It's not just like the actual, you know, physical parts of trying to reduce a dementia and um, all those kind of cognitive Mm. decline, et cetera, but also depression, anxiety, you know, anxiousness, all of that, there's ties with that too. So we we're working with that, with touching upon those kind of ideas as well in that. And, And it's also like the research is so it's not crystal clear because research never is, but it's as close as pretty definitive as you can get. I mean, there are clinical studies. There was one done in Israel last year. It was published last year that found that people who eat like three tablespoons of olive oil a day have less psychiatric disorders and the amount of brain health overall that they feel in terms of feelings of well-being actually increase when you increase your the amount of olive oil that you eat. I mean, this is a clinical research study. So the links are definitely there. And as you said, it's all around the world. This just this general style of eating of more beans and lentils and less meat, but still using meat to make vegetables yummy and using eating those vegetables and the whole grains all together sort of leads to general health and well-being, but also brain health and cardiovascular health, because it sort of all starts with the heart and making sure that your heart is pumping the blood out there to get it to where it needs to go. So it's really exciting when, you know, we see the research, but then we also have the tools to use it and to help our clients and our patients and just our families be overall healthier. Right. Right. Huge. I mean, first of all, I also think it's so powerful that you, and I actually just want to keep going with this, that you guys chose 
Provence as the the region for this trip. And then I saw that you have Croatia, and I'd love to talk about that itinerary <laughs> on your on your calendar for next year. And I'm I think what is so special about where you have continued to work and to create resources and to find different channels and, and avenues to explore is that you you will do things that are hyper-regional and also have universal application. And I feel like that's the most powerful thing about your work in general, if I may just gush for a moment. But tell me about Provence specifically and then what the plan is for your Croatia travels. Well, I wish I could tell you that it was like really strategic thinking, how we picked where we were going. It was more our co-host, Wendy of Bliss Travels, Wendy Jagger of Bliss Travels. She's been doing these trips for many, many years. And she um, she's lived in France. She lives in France for half the year. So when she first started doing these like exclusive customized trips, she started in France. So all over different parts of France. And so she already has had, had these tours set up. Up, um, and one area is Provence. So she, when she approached me, she's like, "Hey, we, I have a tour set up for Provence in a year and a half. Could we? Do you want to tap on to with your book? And that could be like our first introductory one, and see if that's popular. Then we can start maybe adding some more trips on of places that I go. So these are specific areas where she has contacts, and she's done a lot of very exclusive, um, kind of one in a kind experiences in areas. So. Provence is one place that she's been several times. And that's the cool thing we're going. Um, well, I'm going on this one in October, which is going to be a different season than when Serena and I both go back to Provence with whoever wants to join us in June, which will be a different <laughs> season. <laughs> Jacqueline's raising her hand. Um, there'll be different foods in season then. So you can see different aspects of it. And then the Croatia trip is one of her newer trips because what she found was she'd have people that would travel with her and be like, where are we going next? So she has repeat travelers. So then she started doing trips to Barcelona. And then she started doing trips beyond different areas in France. And then she added on Amsterdam. And then Croatia was her more recent finds for exactly the reasons you're saying, Jacqueline's kind of under the radar, underrated besides um, Dubrovnik and uh, Game of Thrones and all that. And in fact... She goes to a couple towns that are a little different too. And she has said the same thing you said about food there. And realize that she has lived in France for many, many years, has been many different places. And she said it's some of the best food she's ever eaten. And if you think of, if you look on a map where Croatia is, it has Italian influence, it has Spanish influence, it has Eastern European influence, and it's right on the sea. So you had your muscles. So that one should be a really uh, unique, fun trip. So that's September, 2023. And we have all that information on our website, teaspoonofspice.com. Obviously the October one, that's sold out, that's done. But we still have some, we have about half, um, we were half sold out for the Provence in June next year. And then Croatia, we just announced. So that is open for whoever's interested in that too. But um, I know you'll have our contact information. People can contact us at our website, teaspoonofspice.com. And it has all the information about the trips on there. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. I've got to ask you a more theoretical question for a second. It's not really theoretical, but it's more more of an opinion-based thought. It strikes me that when you you mentioned, Deanna, at the, at the beginning of our chat, when you said, what do you think of when you think of the Mediterranean? And I think most people would have the answer, Italy, 
right? Like, I think that would be the kind of go-to, or maybe Greece, but even Greece, having spent some time there this summer, is kind of struggling with that message and, like, making that message well-known. Where do you think the U.S. marketing engine starts? Like, what makes it easier for a country, let's say, to market their cuisine and culture in the U.S. or and around the world versus another country. Like, how do we how do we continue to kind of spread this message far and wide, even when people don't necessarily have the ability to travel somewhere just yet, but maybe want to travel in the future or just want to be influenced by a different type of cuisine because they feel like they're making Italian food a lot at home or or something of that nature, right? Like, how do we get this message a little bit more? widely adopted? And where do you think it comes from that we only know it in certain ways? Well, it's interesting you bring this up because it is being talked about. And I I mean, I could give you the answer that can touch upon some areas that can get a little interesting in yeah. conversations. Yeah. But I mean, first of all, that just the very like black and white is because the research around the Mediterranean diet was right. really done in Italy way back when, when it tied into heart health right. and all that. Serena can talk about that a lot because she researched, researched the research a ton um, for the book with that. But it's just the market of, and it's been touched upon when you, when you hear about um, Mediterranean diet, they're focusing on white country countries mm. with white skinned people. And it's not looking necessarily at Africa or Middle Eastern. It's the whitewashing of it, quite frankly. And there's been some discussion about that in the last year or so. And it's opened my eyes up, quite honestly, too, about even the way it's been talked about and marketed the Mediterranean diet in general. Those are the pictures you're going to see. Those are the images you're going to see. That's the way, you know, our country kind of does look through that lens, whether we see it or not, you can deny it, but it's, it's, it's there on many levels. And I think the last several years and some of us who's, you know, want to be more traveled and educated have acknowledged that and seen that to just, just see that for what it is, quite honestly. So we just, we wanted to make sure that we aren't adding to the kind of that very narrow focus of Mediterranean. And that's why we try to open up and even more so than we did several years ago, because we weren't even, we were kind of maybe going along that area too. I mean, our books from the start have included countries beyond the four, right, you know, right, four that are being seen about, but we're trying to double down on it and really open up. I, I like to open up every conversation. What do you think the Mediterranean represents? What country totally. do you think it represents? And then talk about like, there's other areas in the Mediterranean besides those. And to just kind of open your mind set to it, et cetera. I think to the point of, obviously we are, and we understand too, the trips we're talking about are very few people would be able to go on them or afford them. But if there's areas in where you live, countries, restaurants that have that, restaurants, that you can access. Now, again, it's going to depend where you live, yeah. but Serena, like I live outside Philadelphia, so much like New York, I have access to all these cuisines, pretty much every single cuisine. But Serena can talk, I'll let her talk about, she lives in a more rural area, but she has access to some of these off the beaten path that aren't just Italy or Greece um, kind of thing too. So I think that's a huge way people can actually experience it without having to go to the country, uh, the actual country of origin. Right. Um, 
is to, you know, seek out areas that uh, maybe restaurants or people from those countries that might be kind of in your area too. And to the point too, just real quick, and then I'll let her talk about this too, but we, and we like to really talk about Mediterranean. It's not, has to be the shishi fancy stuff. A lot of these recipes are based in peasant food from just much like American traditions and food. It's simplistic food. It's what filled your belly up when you couldn't afford certain things. Um, it's using eating things in season, like preserving foods that you won't be around other times of the year that you can just buy anytime. But I'll stop talking. Let Serena chime in. (laughs) No, I was basically, I agree. I just want to go to farmer's markets. That's one of the greatest places. I know I live not too far out of St. Louis. And so when I go to the farmer's market, there's so many different booths and recipes and people from different cultures all over the world and especially around the Mediterranean where you can buy them and find some new ideas and introduce them to your family and support them and they're probably making those foods right there in their kitchen and I always ask about their recipes and they're so happy to talk about them and they're so happy to share them with me and so just having those conversations with people being interested in what they're making and what they're doing is half of it and probably most of it again it comes better down to sort of having those conversations at the table sort of the conviviality but um enjoying what everyone is putting on the table and learning through that and learning through those stories. I know a lot of the, you asked more about the recipes in our book. A lot of them have come from friends of ours that have traveled to those places or are like, for example, the one that we were testing, um, this is a funny story. One of my husband's friends is from Palestine and he told me about this recipe for kafta, which oh. is lamb-based um, meatloaf. Only what a good idea. They don't bake it in a big giant meatloaf where it's a big, huge piece of meat. They bake it in a um, nine by 13 baking sheet and usually add bulgur and then add lots of What and do lots you know? So they add the whole I, grains. They add a vegetable. I mean, this is what it's all about. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to so interject. Pretty, I just couldn't too. help it. And it takes less time to bake. So that's why right. that's one of the reasons why it's in this book is because right. instead of taking an hour and a half, it only takes about 20 minutes in the oven. And you've got this beautiful parsley that is still green, believe it or not, after you cook it in the oven for 20 minutes. And here's the funny part of the story. So I made it for him actually this week. He was at our house this week and he says, oh, Serena, this is not right. (laughs) What do you mean? And so the onions are not chopped fine enough. You have to go back and chop the onions finer and the meatloaf will be more moist. And so I did. And it was true. If you chop those onions really, really, really finely, it adds moisture to the lamb and the bulgur and the parsley. It's so much better. So just having those, and the, for me, that was one of the most fun conversations that I've had developing this book is just learning the different ways that people who have been making it for a very long time. I mean, he grew up two two blocks from the Mediterranean Sea, and he said, his, my sister is the best cup to make in the entire uh, city. And so she um, she gave him his tips, and that was one of them, and it really works. That is, I was about to get, I went through every emotion just hearing that story. (laughs) I was about to get upset, like, excuse me. I just love the fact that you were able to get that feedback in real time. And I love that you both do that when you're developing recipes, which is to seek feedback from your community and say, where are we 
Are we missing something? That leads me to a, a mildly adjacent tangent, which is, are you ever... Because I feel like I do this a lot when I'm cooking just, just about anything. I mean, and not even developing any sort of recipe, but, but just cooking. It's like, I'll think, this is missing something, and I have no idea what that something is. <laughs> does, that yes. happen, does that ever happen to you both, or are you sort oh, of... Yeah. You've, okay. Yes, actually, um, one of our favorite tips, and it's I'll use Serena's words for it, is often acid is missing. So, you know, the book, Salt, yeah, acid, heat, fat. It's really, when it comes down to it, if you have those four elements, and heat is a flavoring agent. Think about broiling, think about grilling, think about roasting, how different a roasted carrot or vegetable taste versus a raw one. Um, It adds flavor. So acid is the sparkle. That's Serena's word. Sometimes the dish is missing. If it's just tasting eh, add a hint of lemon juice, a little bit of vinegar, like just can, it just wakes up the flavors often. But to your point, I was going to say, and I think Serena would agree with me. One of our most favorite things is, um, that's why we love, like we still do, we're old school. We still do Facebook live. We, it's, we used to do a ton (laughs) of social media all across the, and then we zero down our, a lot of our audiences on Facebook live. So we still to this day, pretty much sits the schedule of every Thursday at 1230, one of us comes on and we do, we talk to our audience and we're cooking something, whether it's seasonal, whether it's from our latest book, whether I'm going to go on after this. And I'm actually talking about something that's just not even seasonal. It's like overripe bananas. I always have overripe oh, bananas. Wait a second. I just had a whole bunch that was honestly completely brown. And I thought, I'm going to cut these up and put them in my freezer. But what happens when I do this is that I do that. And you forget about and them. And then I don't know. Then I'm like, why do, what am I going to do with these mm-hmm. frozen Then bananas? you forget about them. Right. <laughs> well, that's what it is. We, and we, we like to tell people we're not experts. We're just like you. We continue to learn. Right. And that's what we love. We always learn from our viewers, our yeah. readers. Our, that's why we always encourage them. We have a weekly newsletter. Hey, if you have any thoughts on this or tips, share them with us. Like Because sometimes they go into our books. Sometimes we share them on our Facebook Live. And people can watch it back and add comments and we have conversations. But when people are watching live, sometimes they'll a- ask a comment and we always learn from our readers to this day. Serena just learned. I-, I was like, oh my gosh, I never thought about the day either. Chopped up finely and more moisture. We've been doing this for 20 some years. We continue to learn. And that's what we love about it. There's, you'll never learn at all. And that's what's so great. And often we, a lot of the inspiration does come from people watching us and our readers, our newsletter subscribers, and um, that kind of thing too. So, I mean, sometimes that inspires what the next thing we're going to talk about is like, oh, this topic came up here. Someone was asking about this. We thought, let's do a Facebook Live on it or let's reference this recipe to it um, as well. So we're all about, that's what we love about doing like the cooking demos, et cetera. Is we, I don't think we've ever come away, especially we've done cooking demos. We did a lot over, um, you know, COVID and all that. Never come away without learning something new from someone in the community. And and that's why I feel like it encourages people to people think I'm not a great cook, all that. Don't ever say that. Like what defines a great cook um, kind of thing. If, you know, we want to encourage you to feel comfortable enough to do what you can do in the kitchen and yeah, go from there. And a lot of our recipes, but to tap onto something else you said earlier, we try to, it's almost like a template for making it your own type of thing. So that's why a lot of our hacks are like, you don't have this on hand, try this instead, or do your own favorite herb here. And then maybe that changes the entire dish based on what you have on hand too. So 
So, so chop up your bananas, put them in the freezer, make sure they're in small enough pieces so that you can get them apart. Because like only one quarters, because you don't want a whole steak and banana. I used to do plate. that. I used huge. to do it that way. And yeah. it was a huge mistake. Yes. Yep. And not okay. with the peel. I think the very first time I ever did, I, I put did it with, with the peel, peel like an idiot. Like I, I'm I like, know. what? <laughs> <laughs> Had to toss the whole thing. I've gone through every phase. I w- I used to throw them in there with the peel. <laughs> then I was like, all right, take the peel off. Maybe just try it that way. Then it became a, okay, they're going into halves. And now I'm like, no, uh-huh. no. Yep. we're going yep. full mash full circle or too. nothing. And it's when right. she's, I think people <laughs> like to hear the exact same things happen to us. That's why right. we love sharing. Hey, we are not experts. We fail all the time. That's right. why even on Facebook lives, we always laugh. We wish we had a blooper reel because everything has happened. Right. Like, you know, something burns or something didn't cook or if I could turn an oven on or Serena's smirk alarm went off once during a Facebook live. <laughs> like my daughter once who was sampling something, tasted it and literally spit it down their hand said, I don't like this, you know? And then we're like, okay, this is a learning moment. <laughs> That's fine. She tasted it and tried it. So that's not her I favorite thing. That. So she tried it. Right. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So I yeah, love that so much. I love we try that to so keep much. it human and personal when it comes to it. So I, I know, so, I mean, if you had to, and I know I, I find this to be a tough question because I gave my answer to you both earlier, but I do feel like it changes sometimes. Sometimes there's other, you know, like just depends on the mood I'm in the, on the day that I could be answering it. Right. So if we just use today as sort of a snapshot in time, your last meal, Serena, let's start with you. Your last meal, what would it be? Uh, it would probably be bread and cheese and probably some of those canned sardines or mackerel that we discovered during this book. I mean, they're so good now. There's so many of them, even the inexpensive ones. And sure, some of them are a little bit more expensive, but they're so good. And don't drain the olive oil on them. Just drizzle it on the bread too. And it would probably be like the Cabot cloth bound cheddar. That is probably my favorite cheese in the whole wide world. So I'll get say it again. It was the Cabot. It's the Cabot. What kind? Cloth bound cheddar. So it's aged in a cave in Vermont at Jasper Hill, and it's so good. You can taste the little crunchy pieces of crystalline. Oh, yum. Oh, that's a big drop right there, Serena. I feel like that's a huge one. Because first of all, I love the more specific, the better on this answer. So wait, so I've got to just go back for a sec. So are we toasting the bread? And and is there a specific kind of bread? Are we, are we heat? Is this a yeah, warm bread? probably sourdough or I did make a lot of sourdough during COVID uh, area pandemic and I got really good at it. And then, oh, <laughs> it's just sort of languishing in the back of the fridge though. It's still alive, but you, it's amazing how you, that stuff, like it doesn't really die. You can just start it going again. And so that's my goal, but it would be my own sourdough probably that I would try to get going again. And that's then a new level. Okay. The, there is a couple different ones. Um, Wild Planet makes a bunch of different tinned seafoods and their mackerel is really good along with their sardines. Sardine. I'm really on a mission to, to make the sardine, the, the fish of America. I mean, oh, oh, here it is it's right the in the sustain on the cover. First of all, go you, both of you for making that the cover dish of the book, because I've got to say that in any attempt that in, in my past life of publishing, I would, we would always get the feedback. We don't do seafood on the cover. We can't have a fish on the cover. 
right? And that is a huge part. I think that really speaks to also what we were talking about before about the marketing of certain things is that sometimes the gatekeepers are really just the problem. (laughs) So I love that you have a publisher that was like, yeah, we're going there. We're putting some seafood on the cover of this. I love that. Yeah. Okay, that was Shout out to Ben Bella Books. So that's our publisher for this one and for the Smart Mediterranean one, which we did shoot some covers the other day, but we can't reveal yet what they're going to be. But I think with the sardines too, not to have a big honking piece of sardine to see it. If for people can't see, it looks like a fish cake. Right. And the recipe is for if you like a crab cake. You will like like a like a tuna, a salmon cake, a fish cake, kind of potato cake. That's how we put it in there. And if you like canned tuna. We have ways to eat these. We're not saying, and Serena loves them, like just right on the bread or whatever. I I don't like them that way personally, but I love them chopped up in a tomato sauce. We have a recipe. I love them in a fish cake. I love them in the risotto. I love them when they're smoked too. So we're talking about different ways to do it. So again, if you can, these, these foods where you're like, I feel like I should be eating more of it. We try to approach it and put it into like a form or shape you're used to or way you're used to cooking it anyway. So it's not like it's just blatantly sitting out on the plate, but it's the way you enjoy it and it's flavored in that way. So I know we I went off on tangent so with, no, with, I love with, that with so my much. last meal, but um, oh. my last meal would be very similar to Serena's and not the, it wouldn't be the sardines or the mackerel, but it might be the smoked mussels. But what I would say is- Now I'm going um, I've got two food, things added to my grocery list, by the way. I just want to say I've added the, <laughs> the Trader Joe's smoked mussels and the Cabot cloth cloth bound. bound. Yeah. And you can find that pretty much everywhere. Like even your typical grocery store, more in the gourmet section. Um, Cabot's done an amazing job of promoting that cheese. I mean, you can't go wrong with any Cabot cheese, quite honestly. And full disclosure, we've worked them for many years, but we don't work or promote anyone's stuff that we don't eat ourselves and love. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I love that. And they're all, it's owned by the farmers. So you can support American farmers. Right. That's our little tangent, our little plug for Cabot. I love that so much. Um, But my my favorite meal would be a riff on that. And I do want to hear how the mussels were in Croatia, how they were prepared for you too. Because one of my best meals ever to this day when I backpacked across Europe was up the Paille in Barcelona. But along that vein, I could easily say uh, my last meal would be the traditional Italian-American seven fish Christmas Eve dinner, which, um, is a great uh, one too. Yeah. If people don't know about it, it's, 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 I think it's popular in certain cultures, uh, certain parts of America. It's an Italian-American tradition, but based on some do seven, some do 12. And my sister and I revived it over the last several years. So we always have some type of shrimp bacala is a salted yes, codfish that's always favorite. a part of it mm-hmm. um that's normally in a sauce or with potatoes and just i i love i'm just a sucker for any kind of seafood and if i can have t- seven different versions of it in one <laughs> sitting then i i'm i'm a very happy person so i would say some variation of that because it also ties in just memories and family and that kind of stuff so this is really an underrated i've got to say we maybe is a cookbook or it's a, it's a new, this is a new visit. Something around the feast of the seven fishes. As a Jew, I feel like I'm strangely uniquely prepared to speak to it. I just feel like there's nothing better than, than this feast. I mean, seven different fishes. Now you're telling me, Deanna, people do 12? People do 12? 12, I've got it. Now I've got it. 
I'm doing one it. year we I'm... were a short one and we're like, okay, we'll give smelts or another popular one. We'll give the smelts to the cat because we didn't, and then we'll count them as one. When I first started dating my husband, he thought he was funny and he brought Swedish fish, the candy, as one of the fishes. And oh, I was like, that's no, cute stick. That that's nice. Count. That's it could funny. be like a little Don't bowl. Be mocking my, right. my tradition. Right. <laughs> right. That's nice to have out as maybe a past bowl kind of situation, but it's not, it's not one of the dishes. Thank you both so much for the time and for this amazing conversation. I feel like I've learned so much and I just wish that I had another three hours with both of you, but because I don't tell our listeners again, where we can find info about the book and about you and about the trips and and everything that you're doing. Well, everything's Go ahead, Serena. I'll hold up the book. You talk. Okay. <laughs> Everything is so you don't have to memorize a million different uh, site is teaspoonofspice.com. That is where it. everything is. The books, uh, all our books are right there and they'll, you can hit on there and we'll give you the links to all the places you can buy the books. Um, the, the sustainable one, if you order it now, you will get it. Um, it's really, it's being launched December 13th. But the the kind of, if you order pre-sale, because there are some sales going on with it, and you're interested in getting some exclusive online freebies, we're offering any, anyone who's ordering it as a pre-sale book, you can also order it and then email cookbookpreorder at gmail.com. Cookbook pre-order. pre-order at gmail.com. Our publisher thought, oh, let me let me do a simple one so you can remember. And it's so simple, I'm not remembering it. Right. Um, <laughs> you just email that you want the online freebies, then we'll put you on a list. And in November, we're going to just have some exclusive things that only people who are ordered the book pre-sale will get online. Just some extra um, like bonus kind of tip things that everything that couldn't fit in the book. At one point you talked about how do you decide what you cut from the book and all that. We tend to be more in the issues of we have to cut stuff from the book. Now we had to cut stuff from this book, but it worked out because then we could repurpose it in the next book. So for when we turn in the next book, if we have to cut stuff, then we'll repurpose it some way for people who subscribe to our newsletter or watch us online. (laughs) Amazing. I love that. Thank you both so much for being here. Such a treat. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jacqueline London RD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.